As you're turning, may I make bold to remind you that Matthew, or rather uh, Jesus, whose words and deeds Matthew is recording here, has been at pains to teach his disciples, even us, what discipleship requires of us. His instruction concerning the true nature of the genuine Christian life has been at the forefront of this entire gospel, really, but has intensified recently as with every footfall, Jesus finds himself closer to the looming and ominous objective of his mission, the laying down of his life on the cross. Actually, it is those two things that are on the forefront of his mind, as we shall see in the passage today. As Jerusalem lay over just over the horizon, it was the cross that Jesus had in mind, both his own and his disciples. Remember that Jesus had summed up the whole summons of the Christian life in this simple call. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Even as the words crossed his lips, can't you imagine how they must have pierced his own heart at the prospect that lay before him of the cross, and yet they somehow fail apparently even to prick the hearts of the disciples who persist now in jockeying for position, for greatness in the kingdom, even as late as this time we read about in Matthew chapter 20. In fact, it's a clash that will continue, in fact, even to the upper room, even to the very eve of Jesus' crucifixion, but which rises up in poignant juxtaposition here on the path to Jerusalem, for which occasion we're glad today, aren't we, because of the lessons we may learn and must, even and perhaps especially from the blunders of our spiritual fathers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for recording, for your spirit's errand of recording all that uh, we need to hear, including the failings of our fathers and mothers in the faith. They had lessons to learn, and we have the very same lessons to learn. Thank you for presenting us, uh, the saints who have gone before, in the realities of both their triumphs and their trials and their failings. This too, Father, is encouraging for us, for the same grace that met them and picked them up, brushed them off, and sent them once again, to follow Christ is the grace that meets us as we fail, and yet you forgive as we repent and you restore. We pray that you will do that in us even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, we'll begin at verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. 
and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to ask him, to, uh, with, to, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called, to him, called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I felt a bit awkward as I typed the title of the sermon into the bulletin for today, Whoever Would Be Great. Yes, I'm quoting directly from Jesus, so I think I'm on safe grounds, but you know, the implication of the statement might seem to be that a person would start out with a desire to be great in the kingdom and therefore be inclined to listen closely to this, this sermon to discern the formula to, yes, achieve greatness, you know. Yet in that very exercise, actually preclude himself or herself from achieving greatness. <laughs> it is the irony of it all that truly great people in the kingdom are precisely those who do not seek greatness. It reminds me a little of the dilemma that I read years ago in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography in his pursuit of the mastery of, of the uh, great virtues. At a certain point in his life, Franklin decided that he was going to be a good man. And so he took a notebook, and in it he created a table with 13 virtues listed on the left side of the page, which included chastity and order and respect and so on, and humility. Now, at first he wasn't going to include that one, uh, but uh, he wrote a Quaker friend, having kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud, that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation. I determined to cure myself of this vice among the rest, and I added humility, giving an extensive meaning of the word. I seem to recall from uh, the page, it uh, was something like being like Jesus and uh, Socrates. Uh, each day he would mark on the table next to the virtues that he had failed to perform 
that day to remind himself, you've got to keep working on, on that one, on those. And as the weeks went by, he noticed that he was becoming better and better at most of them. Uh, but one kept eluding him. And you know which one it was, of course, don't you? Humility. And finally he had to admit that even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. It's like pursuing greatness, you know, in the kingdom of God. The surest way to ensure that greatness will ever elude you is precisely to pursue it. Greatness, Jesus teaches us here, comes to those who are the most forgetful of their own greatness. In fact, they are most forgetful of themselves altogether. They're too busy, you see, with other matters, specifically with other people. They're, they're too busy following in the master's steps, too preoccupied with imitating their Savior. In a word, they're too busy serving. Now, it's very instructive to us that this rather embarrassing episode in the life of the disciples, and I do mean, by the way, all of the disciples, not just two, as we shall see. I say this embarrassing episode is immediately and carefully preceded by the fourth of four declarations that Jesus has made concerning his own impending future, as recorded in the book of Matthew. In fact, I would have spent the entire time this morning on just those three verses if we had not already considered them in connection with previous declarations just months ago, and if it were not so obvious that Matthew intends for these words still to be ringing in our ears when the mother of the sons of Zebedee falls on her knees before Jesus to present her request. Jesus has just told them, just told the twelve, having taken them aside, this news, verse 18, see we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zedes came up to Jesus with this request. You see, the power of this passage is in the contrast. Jesus is about to be condemned, put on trial handed over to the Gentiles, that is, to the Roman government, for it alone could crucify a prisoner and will be executed. What is more, the death that Jesus is facing is not uh, some form of heroic martyrdom, but instead a harrowing and humiliating and ugly butchery. And he'll be raised on the third day. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Jesus. Now, uh, may we talk about that seating arrangement in glory that you were talking about just a little while ago about the thrones you mentioned the other day? 
Yeah, it just, just one small request. T- just tell me my boys will get to sit at your right and at your left in the kingdom. Hello? <laughs> Are you listening? By the way, before we take another step, I, I want to clear up a matter concerning this mother. We learn later in chapter 27, verse 56, that the mother of James and John was a, a regular member of the larger group of the Lord's disciples. And In fact, if you compare the parallel accounts in Mark and John, it appears possible and likely, in fact, that this woman's name was Salome uh, and that she was the sister of Mary. That, of course, would make James and John the Lord's cousins. Mark has James and John themselves making this request, by the way, if you look in his gospel. But here in Matthew's account, the request is made through their mother. Perhaps they thought that Jesus' aunt would, you know, have some sway, have some pull with Jesus in the matter, and therefore they put her, their mother, to the task. Now, I want to clear her name (laughs) this morning in two ways. Uh, For one, as I just mentioned, I believe that the boys put their mother up to this. I don't think that it was her idea. But I do also want to mention positively that the fact that she was willing to ask this question at all is actually the demonstration of her faith. Of her faith in Jesus' promise and in Jesus' person. She would not ask this question if she were not confident that Jesus is the Son of God and that his kingdom was coming and that he was not only capable but entirely reliable to keep his promise to place those disciples on those 12 thrones just as he had said, ruling with him in his kingdom. She heard him and she believes His words recorded back in chapter 19. Remember when he said, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And she obviously doesn't fully understand these words, but she certainly and most clearly does believe them. That is faith, taking the Lord at his word. What is obvious to us now is that, in fact, none of them really understood, did they, Jesus' words. They don't understand, they don't even understand the nature of the kingdom, apparently, and therefore they certainly don't understand the nature of greatness in the kingdom. They think in terms of office, They think in terms of power. They think perhaps in terms of attention and admiration. To sit at the right hand and the left, of course, I hardly need to remind you, means places of particular honor. They are grasping for greatness. They're acting like Gentiles in some, as Jesus more than implies in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That is the greatness that the world pursues, isn't it? 
for the simple reason that it's the only greatness that the world knows. The greatness of being recognized and admired and being noticed and being up front and in the sight of everyone. The greatness of honor among others. And can we blame the disciples at this point for seeking greatness in those terms? Even despite all that Jesus has had to say to them about the matter. And he has had much to say, hasn't he? Here in Matthew's Gospel alone, Jesus has described all that Christians ought to be and what kind of lives they ought to live and the implications of such a life for their conduct, for their living in Jesus Christ. We remember how he began his Beatitudes, don't we? It was a long time ago, but at least as far as our reading in this house goes, how he began with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Here Jesus was laying the foundation for true greatness in the kingdom in terms in the only terms true greatness is achieved humility 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 remember how he went on to command his disciples not to seek credit for their service and their piety they were not to perform good works so as to be noticed by others he warned them of the powerful temptation to locate the speck very accurately in their neighbor's eye or their brother's eye while overlooking the log in their own. He told them that if they wish to be great in the kingdom of heaven, guess what? You're going to have to become as little children. And recently has reminded us that salvation is not something we can earn, but is rather God's free gift given to us freely and in defiance of what we deserve. Still, I say we can hardly blame the disciples, can we, at this point, for seeking greatness in terms of thrones and honor and position and office. That, that is all they have known and seen, both in the state and even in the church. They had seen very little of true greatness, true kingdom greatness, that is, save for the Savior's example, of course. And perhaps we might even excuse the neophyte American Christian or Christian in America for making the same mistake. After all, greatness in corporate America and in civil America is all about climbing ladders. It's all about being seen, all about being heard and admired and holding positions of authority and attention. And by the way, it's not only James and John who uh, suffer this misunderstanding and this misplaced desire, is it? Yes, they're the, one, they're the ones who come uh, to seek these places of honor, but notice the other ten. Did you see that? When they heard it, when they heard this request, they were what? They were indignant at the two brothers. Why? <laughs> Be
because they were every bit as jealous of privilege and position as the two. That's why they were angry. They were just angry because James and John got out ahead of them, trying to steal something from them that they wanted for themselves. So it all comes down to this. What is true greatness in the kingdom of God? Or maybe more to the point, what is the pathway to reach it? If you're on the right path, you will achieve it. Simply this. Self-sacrificial service. Self-sacrificial service. Verse 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The slave, we know, occupied the lowest position in society of that day. That, dear ones, is your calling. That's your calling. What does a slave do? Well, a slave serves others. A slave serves others at his or her own inconvenience. A slave takes on the troubles and the pains and the thankless tasks of doing good for other people. Well, no wonder the world totally misses greatness. There's nothing attractive about slavery, nothing at all, to those who have no spiritual mind, who have no spiritual sight, no spiritual understanding. But those who have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in them and therefore possess that spiritual discernment that Paul wrote about in his letter to the Corinthians, why, they understand themselves and they understand God and specifically, they understand how utterly dependent they are upon the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice, by the way, that he's just described to them here on their way to Jerusalem. In fact, described twice. And this knowledge simply, inexorably leads to others-centered living. overwhelmed with the love of Christ for us, that apparently this, at this time, this day, left the disciples underwhelmed, our instinct will be to serve others. To serve others with the love with which we have been served and loved. That's the height of Christian experience, isn't it? The height of Christian life, the production of actions that bless others around us. Haven't you known this yourself? Haven't you, know, haven't you been stirred from time to time with a sense of who Christ is and all that He has done for you? You have wanted, when coming to that realization, you have you've just wanted more than anything else to do something to bless others. 
to bless the life of another. In point of fact, what you are experiencing, and hopefully are experiencing, is a love for God. A love for God that simply requires an outlet. And that outlet is love for others. A desire to serve other people. It's what we learn everywhere in the Bible. Uh, is the best way to show love to God, isn't it? The best way is to show love to others. Jesus said it in so many ways. Remember, just as I have loved you, you also love one another. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, what is the sum of the commandments in a word? You know what it is. It is love. And how do we love? Well, Jesus leaves us in no doubt about that. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for, money, for many. Just a very quick word about this. A, a ransom was the price paid to buy prisoners of war out of their captivity or slaves out of their bondage. This is one of many places in the Bible that describes our salvation in terms of substitution, of Jesus' saving work as substitution. Voluntarily, Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice substitutionary sacrifice in our place to pay our ransom, to pay the price of our ransom. Now, obviously none of us is able to take that place for another, for the sake of their salvation. Only one, only Jesus can and has done that on the cross. But what is clear is that Christians, you and I, followers of Christ, have a true pattern in Jesus to follow. Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. This is, we've been celebrating this just recently, this Christmas, haven't we? The Son of God made flesh. And He is the only perfect human being. He has opened heaven up to us, hasn't he? And these things being so, he is our perfect exemplar, the one to be imitated by us. His way, the way of sacrifice for others. So that we know, because he was the perfect human being, that we know is the perfect human life. That is what human life ought to be. His human life is what human life ought to be. Be. His life is what human life is meant to be and what we've been created for and what we've been redeemed for by His blood, saved for a life of service, saved for self-sacrificial service, making ourselves slaves to everyone else, to all around us. That, my brothers and sisters, that's the road to true greatness, to kingdom greatness.
one subpoint needs to be added to all of this. It should not surprise us in the least if such a life also involves some suffering and maybe much suffering. The disciples first put their request for special seating in the kingdom to Jesus. Remember Jesus' initial response? Oh, verse 22, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? With all the overconfidence that was typical of them, especially in the days immediately leading up to the crucifixion, they blurred out, we are able. They didn't know how serious was that cup of suffering, did they? Not even a fraction of this seriousness, but they would soon enough. James was the first apostle to be martyred, as we remember from the book of Acts. Not the first Christian martyr, but the first of the twelve. And violent was his death by Herod's sword. John was the last of the disciples, but he died in exile in Patmos. The disciples did go the way of self-sacrifice, didn't they, for others and of suffering. And we know from Scripture and from history that it proved to be their way to true greatness. I'm reminded by the Greek word that Jesus uses here for servant. It's a diakonos of a sermon I preached many years ago at the ordination of some of our current diaconoi, our, our deacons, in which I reminded them and reminded all of us that if there were a coat of arms for the Christian church, it would consist of this, a basin on a field of towels under which are written these words, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet? And you all can finish that sentence, can't you? Dear flock, there is nothing greater. There is nothing greater you can do in all this world and in this life than to imitate your Savior in self sacrificial service. It is to love him who loved you even unto death to turn and to love others in his name by serving them. Now I tell you on the authority of God's own word, do that and you will be great. You will. You will be great in the eyes, in the only eyes that really matter. You will be great in the eyes of God. Amen.